Amen. We'll go ahead and take your Bibles back out, open up to Mark 4 again. I'd like to begin our time this morning by mentioning an excellent TED Talk. Uh, as you know, if you've been at Grace Life for any period of time, Tommy and I love Netflix, and we also like TED Talks, and uh, there's a great one on addictions called Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong. And the speaker is a guy named Johan Hari, and he grew up in a family that was full of drug addicts, alcoholics, and uh, from his earliest childhood memories, he just always had addiction around him. And so a few years ago, he went on this quest to help people in his life that were addicts overcome their addictions. And so he flew all over the world. He traveled like 30,000 miles. He talked to scientists. He talked to drug dealers. He talked to addicts. He talked to doctors and nurses. He gathered all this research, traveled to different countries. And he discovered that almost everything he thought was true about addictions was dead wrong. And he said this, he said, the traditional way we have sought to deal with addiction in America is this, we have declared a war on drugs. And he said, 100 years ago, the U.S. declared this war on drugs, and so we take addicts and we punish them. We send them to jail, um, we make them suffer, because we believe that if we make them suffer enough, it will deter them from ever becoming an addict again. So the main incentive for them to stop is fear, guilt, punishment, and uh, Johan Hari gives a really vivid example of this because he traveled to Arizona and he observed a group of women on a chain gang. And if you're not familiar with the chain gang, it's like where a bunch of prisoners are strapped around the ankles and they're in this huge long line. Well, Hari went to Arizona. He observes this women in this chain gang walking down the side of the road digging graves, okay? And they all had T-shirts on that said, I was a drug addict, and people drove by honking their horns and jeering at the people, at these women. And Harry said, that's the way that we treat addicts. We punish them, we send them to prison, we mock and jeer them, and then when these ladies get out of prison, they've got a criminal record, which means they can never work really legally again anywhere valuable. And so we basically put barriers between addicts and the rest of society. And that's the traditional way that we seek to help addicts overcome their addictions. And so we punish people, and we use the law. And uh, Hari interviewed a doctor in Canada. His name's Dr. Gabor Mate. And this doctor said this, blew me away. He said, if you wanted to design a system that would make addiction even worse, the American system would be the system that you would design. And that is why the U.S. drug problem has gotten worse and worse. Every year, it's worse than the year before. It's not getting any better. We punish them, we lock them up. A drug addict sometimes will go to prison longer than a murderer because we seek to separate them from society. So Harry kind of, Johan Harry, he knew the traditional way of dealing with addiction, but he discovered there's a country in the world that tried something completely opposite of that. It's the country of Portugal. And in the year 2000, Portugal had um, one of the worst drug problems in all of Europe. One percent of the population was on heroin. One full percent. And up until that time, Portugal had adopted the American way of dealing with addiction. They punished people. They shamed them. They separated them from society, humiliated them. And what happened was every single year, the drug problem grew. And so the prime minister of Portugal said this. He said, we cannot go on as a country with 1% of our people on heroin. We can't go on this way. And so they did something totally revolutionary and counterintuitive. 
They did two things. They, first of all, legalized all drugs from cannabis to crack. Second of all, this is the most important part, they took all the money that they were spending on prosecuting addicts and sending them to prison and putting them up and humiliating them and cutting them off from society and making sure they never worked again. They took all that money. Instead of punishing those people, they used it actually to reconnect them to society. And so they took that money and created jobs, new jobs for the addicts. They, they gave the addicts money to start small businesses and maybe live out a dream that they had. And they would go to like, you know, a garage, and if an addict was a mechanic, they'd go to the garage owner and say, listen, if you hire this mechanic for a year, we'll pay half of his salary. They spent all this money, instead of shaming people and disconnecting them from society, to reconnect them to society, and the results were revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary. I mean, the stats blew me away. Over the last 17 years, drug abuse in Portugal has dropped by 50%. Been cut in half. On top of that, overdose is down massively. HIV is down massively. Addiction in every single category is significantly down. And Hari said this. He said he discovered the traditional way of dealing with drug addiction is dead wrong. It's dangerous. It actually makes people worse. And this has revolutionized the way that he deals with addicts in his life. He said the old way in the old days... If there was a drug addict in my life, I, I dealed with him, you know, I dealt with him, kind of like the show Intervention does, if you've seen that show. It's where you get a bunch of people that are friends and family of this drug addict, and then you, you basically, you have a Festivus for the rest of us, if you're a Seinfeld fan, okay? You get him in a room, and you say, we got a lot of problems with you, bro, and if you don't shape up, we're going to cut you off, and we're going to cut off all communication, because you're killing us. You are killing us by your lifestyle. That's the way the, the show Intervention does it. He said that was the way he used to deal with addicts. He said today, however, he goes to the addicts in his life and he says this, I love you whether you're using or you're not. I love you whatever state you're in, and if you need me, I'll come and sit with you because I love you and I don't want you to be alone or to feel alone. And Hari said this, he said, the message of you're not alone, we love you, has to be at the entry level of how we respond to addicts socially, politically, and individually. Now, Johan Hari, it's not a Christian, but what he stumbled upon is a very important biblical principle. And it's this, it relates to all of life. When you show people grace, who don't deserve your mercy and your love, they get better. And when you punish people with the law and you shame them and use guilt, they get worse. And this is a theological concept that's revealed in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's this. The law kills, but the grace gives life. The grace of God and the grace from us to others gives people life. When you show someone grace... That's undeserving of it. And that's the only time you can show grace. That actually enlivens them. It makes them want to get better. But when you punish people with the law and you dangle them over consequences, they actually end up getting worse. Now, here's the painful reality, though. In order to extend grace to other people, in order to forgive them and be patient with them and accept them and love them, no matter if they're using or not, okay, in order to do that, a death has to occur. 
You know, we love to be on the receiving end of grace. We love that. But when it comes to extending grace, that's a different matzo ball there. Because when you extend grace to someone, that hurts. It's painful. Because at the center of love, of true love, a death has to occur. At the center of forgiveness, there has to be a death. In fact, one of our, our favorite theologians, and uh, she's a prominent researcher of guilt and shame. Her name's Brene Brown. She said this. This quote blew me away the first time I read it. She said, people think love is unicorns and rainbows, but then God sends Jesus, and people say, oh my God, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. And I love this last part. In all these faith communities where they talk about love and forgiveness and it's easy, they don't get it, right? Because there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. In order to forgive someone and be patient with someone, a death has to occur. Every time you take a step towards someone in grace, you go through a mini-death and a mini-resurrection. Because extending grace to others is painful. But here's the good news. Here's the good news this morning. Jesus is promising us in this text that if we're willing to die, we will have a massive impact upon society. If we're willing to die to ourselves and to our preferences, we will have an undeniable impact upon the entire world. That's the entire point of this parable that Jesus is teaching. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, beginning in verse 30... Jesus says this. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Mustard seed, it's small. It's insignificant. It's tiny. It's the smallest of all the seeds in Palestine. But when you take that little seed and you drop it into the ground and it grows up, it becomes a tree that's so large and fruitful that it not only feeds the farmer and his family, it actually it provides a resting place for the birds of the air. And so Jesus is saying this. He's saying the kingdom of God is like a tree that exists for the good of the world. That's the church. And Jesus wants to use us, the people of God, to impact this world and do amazing things. And listen, this message is applicable to everyone in this room because everyone in this room wants the exact same thing. You want to matter. Everyone wants to matter. Everyone wants to be a difference maker. We want to be uh, someone that makes an impact on this earth. I mean, we, deep down inside, all of us want to be the person that people look to and say, you know what, the presence of that person on the earth makes a real difference. Everyone wants that, you know? And not just adults, kids too. Kids want this, you know? There's been so many books today written about kids and how to raise kids and what kids want. Kids want exactly what adults want. They want to matter. They want to matter. They want someone to take them seriously. They, they, they don't want to be patronized. They don't want a participation trophy. They, they don't want to be mocked and ridiculed. They want to make a difference and to know that they matter in this life. They want someone to take them seriously, and they want to matter. And this text is applicable to everyone in this room because we all want the exact same thing. We want to leave this earth better than we found it. And that's why this text this morning is so important because Jesus is promising us a surefire way to make a massive impact on this world, okay? 
And we're all like, amen, you know. I'm like Isaiah, Isaiah 6, here I am, Lord, send me. And Jesus says, here's the painful reality, though. In order to have this surefire impact, a death has to occur. That seed, that little mustard seed, has to actually fall into the ground and die for it to bear much fruit. In fact, Mark mentions that this seed has to be sown twice in this text. Because in order for the world to be blessed, the seed has to die. If it doesn't die, no blessing to the world. And so the main theme of this parable is this. The death of the church is what gives life to the world. The death of the church brings life to the world. We die so that others may live. And so the way we matter is by making a self-sacrifice. And listen, our death... Our self-sacrifice will make massive impacts upon the world. And so with that in mind, I've got two main points, just two main ways that we can die in order so that others may live and we can make a massive impact upon our world, okay? First of all, stop scolding the world, start serving it. I'm probably going to get fired this morning, but it's cool. Um, Stop scolding the world, start serving it. Secondly, stop waiting for the people in your life to change before you start loving them. Stop waiting, start loving, right? Stop scolding, start serving. That's the outline this morning. Two ways we die to self to impact our world. Okay, first of all, let's stop scolding the world and start serving them because Jesus said the church is this mustard seed that grows up and provides blessings to everybody. This mustard seed, it's indiscriminate. It blesses both Christians and non-Christians. The church actually exists to bless the entire world and bless the world's socks off. In fact, If you're kind of skeptical about that, look at verse 32. Because Jesus says this mustard tree provides shade in a resting place for the birds of the air. See that phrase, birds of the air? That is a direct reference to the Old Testament where God said through the prophets that the kingdom of God would be this great giant tree that would grow so big that the Gentiles, the non-believing Jews, would have a place to come and rest. Jesus is saying the church exists to bless both Christians and non-Christians. In fact, the New English translation, I love that translation, it translates it, it says the kingdom of God exists so that the wild birds can nest in its shade. I love that. You know, we exist for the wild birds in society to find a place to actually settle down and find some shade. That's why the church is here. And now, I know this sounds counterintuitive. This sounds totally backwards because the church is the only institution in the entire world that exists for its non-members. Okay? you got Planet Fitness, you got AAA, you got Sam's Club. All of those organizations exist for paying members, people that are a part of the club. The church is the opposite. This is the only organization on earth that actually exists for its non-members. The church actually exists for the unchurched. And so we don't gather here on Sundays for ourselves. We gather here for the outsiders. The insiders exist for the outsiders. The church exists for the unchurched. Now, I realize some people hear that and they're like, well, that's not true. Because the church exists for the glory of God. Right? You know someone like this? Theologian? They're like, the church does not exist for people in the world. It exists for the glory of God. And I would say this. Amen, cowboy. But how in the world do we glorify God? How do we do it? How how do we honor and give praise to our Father in heaven? By serving people. By serving society. In fact, there's this really interesting place in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And uh, yeah, someone gets it already. This, this, this expert in the Old Testament law comes to Jesus and he says this. He said, Jesus, what's the most important law in all the Old Testament? And Jesus actually gives him two answers. It's crazy. He gives him two answers to his question. He said this. First of all, love God. And the second commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these all the law and the prophets, you know, they hang on these two commandments. He actually, he answers his single question with two answers. Because in Jesus' mind, he always connected the glory of God with serving other people. He never split those two. And whenever we start, like, having the glory of God, and we're like, we exist for the glory of God. We don't give a rip about people out there. Whenever you do that, you're missing the glory of God. You're missing it. Because we exist to serve the world. That's the way we give glory and honor to God. And so the church always gets in trouble when it tries to disconnect those two. We are called to do good to all people. All people. And this brings up a very important discussion of what righteousness actually means. You know, we're Americans. Uh, we, we are a very, I got to be careful always. We, we are a very moralistic, separatistic society. That's how we roll. And so we think of righteousness as just being blameless and above reproach and not watching any of those hangover movies, okay? And I hope you don't even know what those are, okay? Uh, but, but basically, that's what we think of righteousness. It's avoidance ethics. It's I don't do this, that, or the other, and I don't even think about it, okay? But here's the deal. Righteousness is not just the absence of bad deeds. Righteousness is also the presence of good deeds. Righteousness is a two-way street. And so you could say, you know, you could say things like this, that guy is so righteous because he never does anything wrong. Boy, amen. Okay, he never does anything wrong. The problem is he never does anything good either. That's the problem, okay? I'm glad the dude's blameless and I'm glad he's above reproach. I get it. But the dude hides out in his house all day long and reads the Bible and he don't know no one any good. And so according to the Bible, you're not righteous yet. I mean, James 1 points this out. James 1:27. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and without fault. Is this. It's two things. It's visiting orphans and widows in their distress and, and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. God wants you to be more than moral. He doesn't want you to be less than moral, but he wants you to be more than moral. He wants you to be useful too. God is calling us to be useful to all people, to serve them. The church is servants of society. That's who we are. We're the ones, if you go back through history, we started the hospitals, we started the schools, we started everything, bro. The government didn't do any of that stuff. We started it. We're the ones that came up with the idea. If we are going to serve society, though, here's the deal. This is going to take massive death to self because you guys, and I'm a pastor now, but you guys are out there in the world, and you know this, not all the world, but a lot of the world is very antagonistic towards Christianity today. You know, as Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted Tim Tebow, they'll persecute you too, okay? That's what he said. That's from the message version of the remix, okay? That's what that's from. So, um, if they persecute, listen, because Tim Tebow, what's he ever done wrong? I mean, he dated a supermodel. He's like, I don't want to sleep with you. I'm saving myself for marriage. He gets blasted by the media. He's this coward dude, this really geeky dude because he has conviction. He's never done anyone any wrong, and they love to bash the guy. And what has he ever done wrong to anyone but love them? Listen, if the world persecuted Tim Tebow, they're going to persecute you too. And we live in a world that's growing increasingly antagonistic towards Christianity. 
And I wasn't always a pastor. I know this. I used to work as a computer consultant in Orlando before I was a pastor. And, you know, that was back in my early conversion days. So I was a little bit obnoxious. I I I own that. I own that. I was going through my cage phase. Okay, I get that. Um, I was very vocal. I was the Unabomber with tracks. I get it. And I was living holy. Okay, I was living holy. There was a lot of secretaries there that were hitting on me. And ain't nobody got time for that because they weren't saved. Okay, they weren't saved. I know the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. And so I'm like, she's got to be saved and she's got to be sold out. And sold out for me meant this. She's got to be willing to go to the mission field. And not only that, but when she's on the mission field, if there's no porta potties, she's got to be willing to poop in the ocean, okay? <laughs> saved and sold out all serious. That was my criteria. And so, um, you know, I was living holy. And so they had no dirt on me. They had no dirt. But listen, they were always attacking me. Like, there was this one case that happened. It was, it was crazy. I was in the kitchen. I was eating a hard-boiled egg. And I'm, like, peeling the shells off and throwing it in the, you know, the, the sink or whatever. And, like, so I'm eating it. And this guy walks in, very snarky guy. He always gave me a hard time, ex-Catholic guy. And he's like, he's like, he walks over. He goes, who left eggshells in the sink? And I was like, dude, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I'll clean that up. And I was walking over to, to, like, flush it down the disposal. And he seriously, he goes, Jeff, was that the Christian thing to do? Like, like, just like that, in that tone, like, exactly like that. He's mocking me, and, like, seriously, like, I, I blew a gasket. I just blew up. I was like, hold, just wait here. I'm going to get my Bible. Seriously, it's like one of those kind of deals where you're like, I'll be right back, you know? And, like, seriously, I dressed him down about the Crusades and how we're not Catholics and all this stuff. I had him back in the corner, you know? And guess what? That guy did not come to Christ that day, okay? He didn't. Because the world, listen, when Jesus calls you to die to self, he calls you to die without fighting back. That's hard to do, bro. But I was in my cage phase, and I was antagonistic towards him, and I gave it to him, and you know what? That's our default mode. They attack us, we want to attack back. Or at least put an anonymous Facebook blog their way, like, hate is going to hate or whatever. And it's like, you know, <laughs> why you got to be that way, you know? Just die. Just die so that others may live. And here's the deal. Um, when we do this, this is going to have a massive impact upon our culture. It is. You know, I read this really amazing story recently about this church. It's a huge Baptist church in the South. It's in Georgia. And uh, they're known for standing up for the truth and unequivocally just preaching the bold, you know, the truth of the Word of God without caring what anyone cares or things or whatever. And there was, a gay, there was a gay pride parade that was planned on the Sunday morning. Okay? And this gay pride parade, the organizer said, we're going to march right in front of this church and just give it to them. And so the church found out about it early. They told all their people, listen, next Sunday, we're going to let out an hour early because we don't want to have any kind of scrums with the people that are going to be walking past our church, and we don't want to get involved, and we want to pursue peace and all that stuff. So they basically, they moved their church service up an hour so they could avoid any contact with this parade, okay? The group found out about it, and they also moved their march up an hour, okay? (laughs) It's a true story. So they get out of church, and they got, you know, their little bonnets on, or moo-moos, and all that kind of stuff, you know, and they're real conservative. So they come out, and, like, all these gay and lesbian people are out there in the streets, and they got their signs and everything, and, like, the people in the church start, like, mocking and, like, gawking and, like, just staring and, you know, just probably giving really bad vibes. And there was a Methodist church on the other side of the street that did the exact opposite. They had all their people outside on the side of the road with tables and cold water with signs that said, come worship with us, everyone welcome. And I thought, booyah, that's exactly what we're called to do. It's not enough just to avoid the world or tolerate the world or be blameless or separate from the world. We're called to serve the world, not to scold them. 
They're unbelievers. What are you going to do? Scold them into becoming believers? Doesn't work. I've tried it. I've tried it. But we are called, first of all, to die to self and to stop scolding the world, start serving it, okay? Now, the second way, and, and, and I confess it's going to be really hard. The second way we're called to die to self is this. Stop waiting for the difficult people in your life to change before you start showing them love. Start showing that daughter who's on drugs grace. Start showing that son who can't hold down a job, never's held down a job, is irresponsible. Start showing him grace. Start showing grace to that husband who can't stay off of those repulsive websites. Start showing him grace. That wife that nags from morning till night, start showing her grace. Start showing grace to the people in your life that are difficult before they change. Start loving them. And the reason we're called to do that is because that's the way that God loves us. And I added my own little notes here, okay? When we were still powerless to change, to get our act together, right? What happened? Christ died for the ungodly. On a very rare occasion, someone might die for a good person or for a righteous person. But God demonstrates his love for us in while we were still sinners, we were still unworthy, we were still problem people, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together before he started loving us. And so God showered his love upon us when we were unlovable people. And here's the amazing thing about this. God's love to the unlovable had a powerful impact upon us. In fact, the Bible says that God's unmerited love towards us actually changes us. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. God is, is the first cause. We love. God's love for us made us into loving people. Okay? Maybe just a little bit even, but we're still loving people at some level. Because God's unmerited love towards people, unworthy people, actually changes them. And that's because love always creates likeness. Love creates likeness. Martin Luther said this. He said, the love of God does not find, but rather creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but rather creates that which is pleasing to it. You guys feel this here? Love creates likeness. And so God's unmerited love is so powerful that it makes unloving people, unlovable people, into actual lovable people that love other people. God's love is powerful. And this is a theological concept called imputation. Imputation. Let's say it together. Imputation, okay? I know we use big words here at Grace Life, but if you can learn to say non-whip mocha frappuccino at Starbucks, if you can learn some new words to order your favorite drink, you can learn some new words in church, okay? I don't think sheep are supposed to be dumb. You know, I heard a lot of sheep are dumb. You know, they run off, they bump in the gates, you know, and they're all natty. And I, Sheep are not supposed to be stupid. We, we're supposed to learn a little bit. So let's say imputation, right? Imputation. Imputation is where you assign to someone a characteristic that they do not possess by nature. This is a very powerful theological truth called imputation. And this is what God does. God looks at unlovable sinners... And he imputes to them and declares over their life, righteous, holy, acceptable, lovable. God imputes that to us. He assigns to us a characteristic that we do not possess 
by nature. This is where we differ from the Catholics. The Catholics believe you must actually be righteous inherently to be declared righteous. We are Protestants. We protested the Catholic Church because God imputes to us the declaration of righteous, holy, acceptable. He declares that over our lives. He calls things into being that don't exist yet. That's who God is. This is called imputation. And listen, that declaration over our lives actually has profound impacts upon our behavior. Look at David in Psalm 32. Happy is the man to whom the Lord imputes no guilt. When I'm guilty and I'm unlovable, and yet God relates to me as if I'm perfectly lovable, guess what that does to me? It makes me happy. It gives me joy to be treated in a way that you don't deserve and to be related to in a way you don't deserve actually makes you happy. It has an effect upon your attitude and your behavior. And so imputation has a transformative effect upon our lives. And, and here's the deal. The same thing is true in your imputation towards others. This works in exactly the same way. The way that you treat other people has a profound impact upon whether or not they get better or they get worse. It's called imputation. And I was talking to a, a church planter recently from uh, Portland, Oregon. And this guy... This is one of the coolest outreaches I've ever heard about, but he, uh, his church adopted a local football team, and uh, the, the team was terrible. Like, they could not win a game. They couldn't score a touchdown. They got blown out every time they played. The church adopts this team. They go to Nike. They, they get new helmets. They get new equipment. They get new jerseys. And a couple hundred people from their church start attending every single one of this football team's games, Okay. So you've got kids decked out in all kinds of fly gear and a couple hundred people now up in the bleachers cheering for them. And you know what he said? It had a powerful impact upon the team. I mean, all of a sudden, these kids that couldn't win a game are playing better, they're playing harder, and not only that, all of their parents are asking themselves, what in the world are all these people doing here that are cheering on my son? I don't understand this. He said it had an absolutely transformative effect upon the entire team. The culture itself of the team changed. And you ask yourself this question, what is that all about? It's about imputation. This church was imputing to this football team worthiness and respectability when they weren't worthy of any respectability at all. They stunk. But here's the deal. When you come out and cheer on a team that gives you nothing to cheer about, eventually they do give you something to cheer about. It's called imputation. It's very powerful. Because your view of other people has a tremendous impact upon them. And listen, you know this already. Before we opened the Bible up and talked about imputation, you know this because you know in your personal life, when someone believes the best about you, when someone um, affirms you and trusts you and has the best possible motivations behind all your decisions, that has a profound impact upon your performance around them, doesn't it? I mean, we can rise and live up to people's potential for us. We can do that. I mean, we, all, we all have grandmas, right? We all have grandmas that think we hung the moon and we're a bag of Skittles and a rainbow and all that, and we are awesome around them. We can't do anything wrong. On the flip side, when someone is skeptical of us, when someone doubts us, doubts our sincerity, thinks the worst about us, attributes all of our motivations to, to the worst possible conclusion, when that happens, what happens when you get around that person? 
You fumble your keys, you can't talk, your IQ drops 50 points. I mean, you're just, you're a putz. You're an immediate putz because they're, whatever they're imputing to you, whether positive vibes or negative vibes, has a direct impact upon your performance, upon whether you perform better or worse. And so this is a very, very powerful truth called imputation. In fact, there was a New York Times article that came out recently. It was, it was, it was amazing. And it talked about the correlation between a patient's attitude towards their doctor and the level of care they received. And the study, it scared me, okay? And it should scare any people that are critical of their doctor, okay? <laughs> because, because basically, it, it said there's a direct link between your attitude and how well your doctor can treat you. And it said this, people that made negative comments when they went to the doctor's office, they said things like, you know, I knew I should have gone to a better doctor or a better hospital. When you make a negative comment like that to the nurse or to the doctor, it is, it is statistically proven your doctor and the entire medical staff is affected. I mean, the study revealed that when you make a negative comment, the individual performance of your doctor and your nurse gets worse, teamwork deteriorates, communication between the doctors and the nurses is impaired, and to boot, the effects, they last the entire rest of the day, which means long after your negativity has left the doctor's office, people that are still being treated are still receiving bad treatment because of you. And so one critical comment of your doctor, a skilled professional who's been to school, can level them. In fact, the study revealed that making negative comments has a worse effect upon your doctor than if they were sleep-deprived. I mean, think of that. It's better for your doctor to come in on like two hours sleep than for you to make a negative comment about them because whatever you impute to people, either positive vibes or negative vibes, directly affects their performance. And the reason we should start loving the unlovable people in our lives is because whether you choose to extend love or withhold love will have an undeniable link upon whether or not they get better or they get worse. It's been said, treat people as if they already were, right, what they ought to be, and you help them become what they're capable of becoming. Imputation is powerful. Whatever you impute to someone and describe over them is powerful. And that's why if you affirm someone and show them love and say to your addict friend, I'm here and I'll sit with you. I don't want you to be alone. That is just as powerful in a positive way as saying this, you're a putz. You can never get your act together. I've forgiven you a million times, and you're never going to make anything of your life. That has a corresponding, equally negative effect. And listen, when you do that, you are speaking self-fulfilling prophecies over their life. When you speak negative criticism, you are speaking self-fulfilling prophecies and imputing negativity to their life. They will get worse. And so we, if we can get our arms and our heads and our minds around this and our hearts... If we could start loving people before they're worthy of love, eventually start, they'll start being more lovable. And I know this is the point in the sermon where everyone's like, you know, th this, is, this is crazy talk. Because <laughs> everyone's thinking of a particular example in your life. You're thinking, you know what? My husband, who, who's been hooked on porn for years, he doesn't deserve my sacrifice. He doesn't deserve my grace. Or you're thinking, you know, my wife who nags me from morning till night and is just over my shoulder nitpicking everything that I do, she doesn't deserve my sacrifice. My son has been in rehab so many times, you don't understand him, you don't even know him, he's not deserving of my sacrifice. You're thinking of particular people and you're thinking this is crazy talk, but here's the deal. Here's the first thing you've forgotten. 
You're no different than they are. This is definitely going to be fired this morning, right? You are no different than they are, okay? In fact, let me ask you a couple questions. Before you became a Christian, did you sin continually? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, there we go. Got some theologians in the house this morning, okay? All right. After you became a Christian, do you still sin continually? Oh, man, that was even more powerful. I get that. Y'all almost journal a lot, right? <laughs> June 11th, blew it again, you know? Boom. Okay, that's good. Most people miss that one, okay? Because that's the defining line between Catholicism and Protestantism, okay? I'm just giving you. Because if you don't think you sin habitually after salvation, you have reported to the wrong building this morning, okay? Look for one of the tall steeples with Catholic in the front because we sin every day in thought, word, and deed. And I'm not bashing the Catholics. This matters. Theology matters. Theology has an impact upon your life. Imputation has a real impact upon your life. This is life or death right here, folks. And so our best deeds after salvation, Isaiah 64, 6, our best deeds, our righteous acts, are like filthy rags. That's not the worst you do. That's the best you got, bro. It's jacked up and it's tainted. The best things we do, and it's mixed. And don't get down on yourself, because Jesus' blood actually cleanses those good works that are tainted and actually makes them truly good, and then he rewards us on the back end in heaven because he is gracious. He's so stinking gracious. So he not only motivates us to do good works, and then they're tainted, and then he cleanses them and says, I'm going to give you a reward for those and credit for those when you get to heaven. So our best deeds, our best Holy Spirit wrought works are tainted. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 16, paragraphs 5 and 6, if you have any questions, okay? That's what it is. So we all sin habitually in thought, word, and deed. So we're all repeat offenders. And listen, if you believe anything other than that, then you haven't quite understood your own heart after salvation, and you're going to feel entitled. You're going to feel better than the person that you're trying to suffer with, and you're going to think you're somehow inherently different than them. When you forget that God imputed to you the declaration of righteous, you're not actually righteous. Now the question is this. Even though you sin habitually in thought, word, and deed, how does God feel about you right now today? Love. Love, affirmation, righteous, holy. Jeremiah says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does everlasting mean? It means it's never going to end. You're never going to out-sin and out-kick your coverage with God. You're never going to come to a point in time where God says, that was the last straw. You're done, bro. I'm cut off from you. God loves you with an everlasting love. And we have to remember this as Christians, that we are still unworthy, and yet God loves us like we're completely worthy, okay? Because I think oftentimes, in fact, I know this, in our lives, we walk through our lives thinking the gospel's too easy. This sounds crazy that God loves us with an everlasting love, even though we're still not worthy of his love. It sounds to us foolishness. And we think, any day now, God's going to hammer me. Any day now, the shoe's going to drop, because there's no way that God could really love me like that. We, we inherently think that way because we have a conscience. And your conscience does not function on the basis of the gospel. It only functions on the basis of the law. That's all it understands. All your conscience can do is say, here's the standard, and here's where you are. And that's why we go through our lives, even as Christians, being free, but not feeling free. Not feeling quite affirmed, you know? 
yesterday, my son, he's five. I asked him permission to use this illustration. He gave me the thumbs up, so we're cool. But uh, he, he, I came out. It's 11 o'clock in the morning, and he's eating ice cream out of our freezer. Just 11 o'clock in the morning. And he knows he's not supposed to be in there. He knows that what he did was wrong. He didn't ask. And so I, I put the lid back on it, and I put it back in the freezer, and I sent him outside. Five minutes later, he comes in. His eyes are puffy, and they're red. And, and he comes in, and he asks me to spank him. Okay? Now, we, before you call Popo or whatever, okay, um, <laughs> we do not spank our kids for getting into the ice cream bin, okay? That, we're a little bit more gracious than that, okay? But he was wrong, and there should have been some punishment, but, but I didn't punish him. He came in. He actually asked me repeatedly to spank him, and I said, son, I'm not going to spank you. And he said, why? And I said this, because you broke the law of thou shalt not eat ice cream, you know, before at least nine and before, not without asking dad, okay? So he broke the law. He's a lawbreaker. But I said, I'm showing you grace. I'm showing you unmerited favor because that's how God loves us, okay? Now, here's what blew me away. This is, this, he said this verbatim. He said, how come I've never heard this before? <laughs> Actually, I think the proper thing he said was, how come this is the first time I'm hearing about this? I think that's the way he said it. You have to check with Lauren about that because she was right here. Um, but, I, but I thought to myself, I was a little bit offended because I'm like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, this is Jeff Eckert here. What are you talking about, man? Like, I'm the gospel dude, man. Like, I, I'm, I structure our entire lives around showing you grace, man. Do you know how many paddles you've been averted from? I mean, do you understand? Every night when I tuck you in, I explain to you grace. And for him, though, it was like the first time he ever heard it. And I'll tell you this, the same thing is true of us. God showed me in that moment, that is you. Because you go through your life, Jeff, thinking any day now the shoe's going to drop and God's going to get me. And you walk through feeling guilty, even though it's already been pronounced over your life, no condemnation. I'm no different than him. And there's a part of us that thinks any day now God's going to get us. It, God can't merely say I'm righteous. Listen, he can't. Imputation is a two-way street. And for God to declare us righteous, Something had to die. Someone had to die. Death is always at the center of love. And Jesus had to die on our behalf. Because God made him that knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And so we got to shove that message into our brains every day because like Luther said, we forget it every day. We forget it every single day. And listen, if you have a hard time believing that God still loves you despite your bad track record in the Christian life, then let me ask you this. Which of your sins did the cross fail to cover? None of them. It covered all of them. And listen, your sins may haunt you in this life. You can sin your way out of your job. You can sin your way out of your marriage. You can sin your way out of a good reputation. But you can never sin yourself out of the love of God. It's fixed forever. It's done. And the more you remind yourself that you are totally unworthy and yet God loves you with an everlasting love, let me tell you something, you will be more gracious and forgiving with the people in your life because you're no different than them. And the person that extends grace the best is the person that knows they need it the most.